Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. As always, references to online resources that we discuss on the show are available on the episode page at jimruttshow.com. I'd also like to take a second to ask our listeners who haven't done so, if you like our show, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. It's somewhat annoying, but it's unfortunately a real fact of the podcasting ecosystem that having lots of good ratings drives visibility on the podcast apps, which builds our audience. Our audience help us to continue to attract the amazingly good guests we've had on the show. So please take a minute when you're done listening today and give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. Thanks. Today's guest is thinker, writer, and philosopher Forrest Landry. This is the third time Forrest has been on the show. He also appeared back in EP31, where we engaged in a pretty broad survey of his thinking on various topics. Forrest was also our guest on EP96 back in November 2020, when we began the discussion of his imminent metaphysics. That's imminent, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, metaphysics, which we will continue today. We'll be doing enough review up front so that listening to EP96 isn't necessary. For those who want to dig deeper into Forrest's ideas, I can recommend it. I recently reviewed it as part of my preparation for this episode, and I can say it's a classic Jim Rutt Show episode, so feel free to check it out. Uh, now, a final preamble. Forrest's work that we'll be discussing today is most accessibly laid out on his website, uh, which you can uh, find the table of contents and the various underlying documents that we'll be talking about on mflb.com slash 1296. You can also go to mflb.com and it will prompt you to enter a number, in which case you uh, enter 1296 and you'll get the table of contents for the stuff we're talking about today. You can pull the documents up and read them. Uh, well worth your while if you really want to go deep. Uh, we're going to start off, as I said, with a few minutes of review from the previous episodes so that folks can follow what is to come. Let's start out with uh, essentially the beginning at what we're trying to get at here. And this is a quote from the work. Metaphysics begins as an inquiry into the nature of the relationship between self and reality. It is this relationship which is the essence of the study. What do you mean by self? And how do you mean that it's separate from the world? Or do you mean that it's separate from the world? Or should selves be thought of as part of the world? In this particular case, we are actually referring to a sort of uh, historical notion. So there's this idea called the plane of perception, and it's kind of a rhetorical device. On one hand, you have everything that we perceive. And on the other hand, we have the self that is doing the perception. So the notion of the subjective or the notion of consciousness, the sort of first person perspective that we have is all sort of wrapped up in this uh, concept of the self. And so in that sense, we are uh, really looking at uh, the plane of perception using the notion of self and using the notion of world as a kind of method by which we can really understand what is perception uh, as a concept. What is what does it mean to to cross the plane of perception? So one way we could sort of do this is you imagine uh, a kind of an envelope, like you you put a, a sort of a bag over the person and you say, okay, everything that crosses through the bag, so like from the surface of the skin to the world. So 
in this sense, we are uh, looking at what crosses the envelope. And whether we regard the interior of the envelope as being part of the real objective world or whether we regard it as in some way other than uh, is an assumption that we can make later. We don't have to make it at this particular point. And again, obviously, that's something we talk about in some of the other episodes with other people in our scientific study of consciousness theory. And uh, you know, many people would say that the self is part of the world. But I, I see your distinction. And for this purpose, let's, let's go with that. Uh, in, the, in our last episode, uh, you talked about uh, the notion that relationship between the subjective and the objective is ontologically real and worthy of study. Could you say a little bit more about that? Because it comes up again and again that relationship is, uh, is very significant in your work. So in a, in a lot of ways, we're looking at the relationship between the measurer and the measured. So for instance, uh, when we think about the scientific method, we're thinking about, uh, you know, we have a hypothesis and then we actually put it to test. And the testing process, the, the, the way in which we actually make measurements, that the notion of measurement itself is treated as a, as a fundamental concept. So in other words, that we uh, impute the thing that we're measuring and we impute the notion of uh, what is doing the measuring. Um, so in other words, we have somebody reading the dial on the, on the Geiger counter and, and we impute that from the reading on the dial that we think that there's radiation present. But the actual uh, objectivity is, is, is through, the, through the instrumentation, it's through the measurement itself. So in this particular sense, what we're effectively getting at is the idea that the ontological process of making a measurement or making an observation um, is essentially the, the, the grounding basis by which we can identify that there is something. Um, so in other words, we, we have the notion of that there is a measurement. And then we have the notion that there is something measured and there is someone measuring. Um, and again, this is really just a, a, a sort of a formality because we're, we're, we're trying to just sort of notice the, the order and the degree to which we are introducing concepts. Uh, so for instance, what assumptions do we have to make? So this is uh, a little bit of a, of a kind of a fine distinction because on one hand, we could talk about something which exists. And we can say, oh, well, how do we know that something exists? Like, what is the epistemic process that we would use to establish that something exists? Well, in this case, it's, it's relatively straightforward. If I can have an interaction with it, if I can measure it in some way, if there's, if there's some at least possibility of uh, engagement that would be confirmable, that there was a kind of an observable aspect and there's, a, there's even a repeatable aspect, that um, with those things, we can basically assert that, that something exists or that it's objective or that it's real. And in this particular case, we can get into the distinctions of those concepts later, but I just wanted to point out that in every one of these cases, the, the notion of interaction is taken as a prior concept in order to establish things like exists or to be real or to be objective. Yeah, I think I won't go into it, but you also talk about the perceiver, the perceived, and perceiving seems very similar. So any, any little bit of additional color you want to add to those three distinctions? Well, they, they overlap. So for instance, the, the idea of the observer as the perceiver, uh, perception as a process itself, and then the perceived would be like the content of the perception. So in other words, uh, we have a process that basically associates a content within a context. In this particular case, we're talking about a subjective context that is receiving a content from an objective context. 
So in, a, in effect, we could we could sort of use the notion of, of information theory and entropy and, and things like that as, as part of the description. Um, you can model it as a kind of a communication channel that, you know, in effect, there's a there's a signal producing um, world and the signal travels through a communication channel and is received by itself. So in this sense, the uh, the perceiver is on the receiving end of the communication channel. The communication channel has some sort of dynamic associated with it. And then the content of the of the information that's flowing through the communication channel is, is taken as representative of uh, the perceived. Next, uh, something that you talk about a lot, very near central to your to your work, as I take it, is the idea of choice. You compare choice uh, in the subjective realm to causality in the objective round, if I got that more or less right. Uh, in fact, you think it's so central that you said, if we want to understand the nature of the subjective, we need to think about choice. The notion of self is characterized in terms of choice. Uh, so maybe unpack your meaning of the word choice a little bit, and maybe if it works, uh, a little compare and contrast with causality. There's actually a couple of other terms that come up with this uh, determinism and indeterminism. So, for instance, when we think about the relationship between, say, um, mathematics and scientific knowledge, um, and, I, and I know this this seems like a little bit of a digression, but it but it's kind of important to the grounding of the notions. So, for example, when we think about knowledge in a mathematical sense, it has a kind of absolute character. So, for instance, the the equations are considered to be uh, the defining nature of the equations is down to the scale of, of, of infinitely small. In other words, that um, you know, 2 equals 1 plus 1, and you could assume that there is a decimal point with, with a whole bunch of zeros to the right for each of those three numbers. So in effect, the numbers are fully specified down to uh, whatever level of detail. And so in this sense, mathematics has a kind of deterministic characteristic. When we think about science, the knowledge that we have in the scientific world is of a causal nature, and it doesn't necessarily require a kind of uh, infinite degree of specification. So, for example, if I uh, have an email application and I've typed in an email and I type the, the, the send command or I move my mouse pointer and I click on the send button, then there is a, a series of things that happen that result in the email that I have printed on my screen resulting in uh, something that's displayed on your screen. And I don't necessarily need to know in microscopic detail all the things that, that happen between uh, my clicking of the send button and you're seeing my email. There's a lot of electronics, things that happen in the background, you know, electrons moving on wires and so on. And we just, from, a, from an operator's point of view, we just need to know that when I click on this button, that there will be this outcome. So in this particular sense, the the difference between determinism as a, uh, a way of thinking and causality as a way of thinking is uh, basically the, the same sort of difference that we would have between, say, uh, indeterminism or perfect randomness uh, and choice. And they, and they show up to the same degree. So one of the things that has come up a lot in philosophy is uh, the idea that if the mechanical universe or if the, if the entire universe is in some way perfectly predictable, then there's no real room for, you know, phenomena like uh, free will, for example. And so in a sense, the, the distinction that basically uh, is between 
determinism and causation is also a distinction that exists between perfected hard randomness and choice. Um, one way that this shows up is that when we think about hard random, we think of it as being meaningless. Whereas when we think about choice, we think about it as being meaningful to the person that's making the choice, even though it might not be uh, evidentially meaningful to anyone else who's just witnessing uh, whatever the expression is that that, uh, that particular person may make. So for example, when we think about computer science, for example, we have a, uh, a process, uh, information uh, compression. You, know, you, you put a, a file into a zip utility and it's going to factor out all of the stuff that could be predicted and leave you with just the, the sort of uh, unpredictable residue that, that, that effectively comprises the fundamental structure of the file itself. In the same sort of way, if you look at uh, neural process, for example, there's, there's a lot of stuff that we could predict um, you know, based upon past neural states. We could predict future neural states. But it turns out that with any complex system that the capacity to predict the future is going to be quite limited. Uh, you know, if you look at weather phenomena, for example, there's a lot of sensitivity to initial conditions. There's a lot of uh, dynamic process that essentially amplify subtle uh, differences in the beginning so that they become very uh, macroscopic uh, differences later on. So in effect, when we're looking at something like, you know, what's going on in our brains as a, as a kind of dynamic process, it has, you know, tremendous degree by which it amplifies uh, sensitivity of initial conditions to wildly different uh, later states. So in this particular sense, you know, if we're, if we're looking at the degree to which we could predict a person's future comments based upon our, our ability to know them, our ability to uh, understand, you know, what their motivations are and things like that, we would be able to have a pretty good hypothesis of what they might say or do next. Whereas, um, you know, the more that we sort of get into the process of trying to predict that, we, the more that we notice that, that our capacity to make such predictions is actually going to be quite limited. And that there's a lot of stuff, a lot of detail information, for example, that we wouldn't have been able to predict on the basis of anything we previously knew. So in this sort of sense, there's a kind of irreducible randomness from the point of view of the perceiver, because when we're thinking about the capacity to predict the future, that's a sort of, um, you know, what is the regularity? What is the causal process that would allow us to uh, essentially make that prediction? That's a kind of information compression. So in effect, we can, we can say, okay, well, after we factor out all of the things that we could predict and we're left with just the residual of stuff we couldn't predict, uh, that's basically like saying, uh, after we've done perfected information compression, what's left? And from an outside point of view, like when, again, when you look at a compressed file, that the residual information has a character of being uh, considerably more random or having a higher entropy uh, just from an observational basis than, uh, say, the original file, which you know, certain regular patterns would be evident. So in this particular sense, we're, we're basically saying that from an outside point of view, after the information compression has been done, after the predictability has been factored out, that there's essentially a randomness that is unpredictable. And so from that point of view, it would seem that the choices would result in a kind of randomness or come from a particular kind of randomness. Whereas from the subjective point of view, you know, when we're, we're inside our first person perspective, uh, there's a sense, and again, this is a felt thing, and we can talk about that as another aspect, but there's a sense by which the, the choices that we make have a context. They have a, they're, they're part of a subjective context that, that we can understand why that choice was being made, even though you know, outside perspectives not, might not have access to uh, what that context was and therefore not see the connections between past choices and future ones. So in effect, there's a, there's a kind of unobservability of the context of the subjective. 
such that there is a difference between the degree to which a choice is regarded as meaningful from an external point of view versus the degree to which it's regarded from an internal point of view. And this turns out to be a, a pretty important phenomenon to really understand. So from a philosophical point of view, we're not really looking at it from a kind of compatibilism perspective. We're basically saying that the notion of choice and the notion of causation are in effect duels of one another. They have a sort of reciprocity that to the degree that there are um, actual phenomena in the universe that we couldn't predict. You know, uh, maybe there's uh, you know, three body problems or, or maybe there's quantum mechanical things in the Heisenberg uncertainty principle that we would not be able to uh, establish as fundamentally uh, having a pattern that could be uh, essentially identified on the basis of any prior knowledge. So in this sense, we can, we can sort of say, okay, there's a kind of symmetry between determinism and indeterminism, uh, perfect predictability and perfect non-predictability. And then a, a somewhat softer version of that with the notion of causation, which basically is a sort of a, a mesoscopic or macroscopic perspective of, of you know, regular patterns. And uh, choice, which would effectively be, you know, again, from a mesoscopic or macroscopic, a, a sort of an absence of patterns, at least from an objective point of view, though they may, as I said, uh, be uh, subjectively regarded as meaningful. So, so in this sense, there's a lot involved in the way in which we think about how choice and subjective are co-defining of one another, in the same sort of way that we think of uh, the notion of uh, causation and, say, scientific knowledge or of, of, of objective knowledge as being co-defining. This is a relatively hard topic to get into right away because uh, it really does require a kind of reconciliation of first-person and third-person perspectives, uh, the degree to which, say, uh, a measurement process or a scientific process results in objective knowledge being that it's not only observable but is repeatable uh, versus uh, looking at uh, choice as a, as a way of, of essentially identifying things which are uh, more defined in terms of continuity rather than in terms of symmetry. So in other words, rather than having a kind of knowledge which is you know, a regular pattern in terms of symmetry, we're looking at a kind of knowledge which is dependent more along uh, the notions of connectivity, in this case, between um, you know, one choice and another or between a basis of choice, you know, what's meaningful to a person uh, and the specific things that they actually do. Next, in, the, in our review part, uh, you say, I don't remember who was in the podcast or in, in the writings, uh, the universe doesn't have anything other than stuff about creation, stuff about existence, and stuff about interaction. And we say that interaction is, in some sense, more fundamental than the notion of existence. And from there, it isn't hard to say that the notion of interaction is actually even more fundamental than the notion of creation. Now, that was all your words. It kind of rocks one's intuitions about reality at some level. And in fact, uh, you then go on to say, it turns out that the relationship between realism and idealism is itself considerably more primal than both the notions of realism or idealism. Wow, there's a lot there. Unpack that for us. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll do my best. There is a lot there. Uh, so, for instance, um, when, when we think about these, these concepts, for example, when we think about the concept of universe, right, there's a series of assumptions that we sort of tag into that. And, and, and part of the discipline of doing this sort of thinking is to, is to notice the assumptions and to sort of account for them. Um, in this particular case, when we think about universe, 
uh, we tend to think about existing stuff in a kind of container. So matter in space. Um, and the universe would be the totality of all the matter and uh, for all of the space that we conceive of, at least, or, or maybe get to, you know, I could talk about uh, time-like cones and things like that. Nonetheless, it turns out that um, there's another way to sort of appreciate the concept. So, for instance, instead of thinking the, of the concept as being a concept which is referring to a container with things in it, uh, we can think of the concept in terms of, uh, say, a question like, what would we need to know in order to understand all that could be known about this concept? There's a different orientation. So, for instance, if I, uh, in the first case, if I, if I wanted to say, what would I need to know in order to understand the universe? Well, I need to know about all of the stuff that's in the container. But on the other hand, that doesn't really quite cover it because there's a things that happen in time, right? So for instance, we could say the container is all of time and space, um, but then we wouldn't really be able to talk about the possibility of things. Like, so for instance, somewhere along the way, the, the notion of, um, you know, in quantum mechanics, for example, that things could happen or might have happened. Um, and so taking kind of a uh, general relativity perspective of, you know, all of time and space uh, might factor out the notion of process. But if we have a notion of uncertainty, then we need more than just time and space. We also need a dimension of possibility. Uh, so all of the possible things that could happen, for example, as, as being a, a, another dimension in which to think about this notion of container. Um, but if we're going to go that far, then to some extent, we're needing to actually account for the notion of interaction as being in addition to the notion of just thingness, i.e. that there's existing stuff. And now we have that stuff kind of bumping into one another, that there's a notion of process. And moreover than that, there's a, there's a notion of uh, the counterfactual, what could have happened rather than what actually did happen. So in this sense, we, we find ourselves having to expand the notion of what we're thinking about uh, with the concept of universe to include these other aspects. And so in effect, we can uh, sort of jump to the conclusion a little bit and we could say, okay, well, if I wanted to understand everything about the notion of universe, rather than thinking about it as a container and then saying, well, this container has three aspects. It has uh, space and time and possibility. And then when it, we think about the content of it, we can think about the content as being uh, matter or forces or probabilities then in effect, we can just say, well, let's look at um, if we knew everything that there was to know about existence, you know, matter in space, and we knew everything that there was to know about um, interactions, i.e. Uh, forces in time, and everything that there was to know about creation, which effectively would be uh, sort of a proxy for potentiality or the notion of uh, probability over possibility. Um, then in effect, if I knew everything about existence, interaction, and creation, then I would know everything that there is to know about universe, i.e. that the concept of universe is subsumed by the combination of the triple concepts of existence, interaction, and creation. And so in effect, we can sort of you know, double check, like, is there anything that I would not know about the universe if that was not covered by those uh, three concepts, uh, creation, existence, interaction, taken as um, that everything that was possible to know about those things was fully known. Is there anything left? Well, actually, there isn't. This is sort of an exercise, but the idea here is, is can you think of anything that would be uh, knowledge about the universe that isn't itself a strict subset of knowledge about existence, uh, creation, or interaction? So in effect, what happens is, is that we, we end up upgrading 
our concept of universe. It's now a concept that is understood in terms of three component concepts, which themselves have any number of aspects. Obviously, uh, we don't ourselves know everything that there is to know about any one of these things, creation, existence, or interaction. But if we did know everything that there was to know about them, then we would know everything that there was to know about the notion of universe. And so um, this is a, a sort of a formality in the sense that it, it moves the notion from a dual one, i.e. Uh, stuff in a container, to a triple one in terms of these underlying notions of uh, existence, creation, interaction. And so in effect, we've partitioned the problem on a different basis. Um, now we can start to look at, well, what are the concepts that are intrinsic to existence? What are the concepts that are intrinsic to interaction? And what are the concepts that are intrinsic to uh, creation? And what are the relationships between these three concepts themselves? And it turns out that uh, once we've done this sort of reification on the notion of what the concept of universe means, then we can start to think about the relationships between these component concepts. And this is where the, the axioms and the modalities can come to play. So in effect, we can say, well, is there any notion of existence that doesn't somehow imply both the notion of interaction and the notion of creation? Uh, and it turns out that there is not. Um, and the same could be said for each of the two others. Uh, any notion of interaction that doesn't imply both creation and existence or any notion of creation that doesn't imply both interaction uh, and existence. So in effect, the three concepts of creation, ex existence, and interaction are seen to be as distinct, inseparable, and non-interchangeable concepts. And this is essentially the concept of axiom three in the metaphysics. Then we can say, okay, well, having established this distinctness and separableness and non-interchangeableness, uh, is it the case that one of these concepts has a sort of basis by which it, um, in other words, of, of the three concepts, is there one that seems to have a kind of a reciprocal relationship with the other two and the other two themselves in a reciprocal relationship with each other? So in other words, we're starting to see a little bit of structure that occurs between the defining concepts of the domain uh, that we would call the universe. The notion of interaction uh, effectively is, again, from a definitional basis, and you know, we're not looking at it in the sense of embodied in time and space, but in the sense of the idea that if I think about creation and the, the concept of existence, they have a kind of uh, back and forth relationship and that the back and forth relationship is a kind of interaction concept. In other words, that the notion of interaction is something which allows for us to find the concept of existence or that the concept of existence is defined in terms of the notion of interaction. Um, and the same is true for creation. In other words, when we think about um, what does it mean to uh, say that something exists, again, as we mentioned earlier, we had to have an observability. We had to have some sort of interaction with it in order to validate the hypothesis that something exists. So in that sense, the concept of existence depends upon the concept of interaction. Um, when we think about creation, uh, you know, again, we can probably get a little bit past the notion of you know, creation from nothing. But in a lot of cases, we think about you know, the degree to which uh, one domain of activity emerges from another. So the, the way in which the um, magnetic emerges from the electric or from the electric from the magnetic. In other words, that there's a kind of uh, co-emergence phenomena that occurs and that if we were to consider the notion of emergence itself, it would itself be dependent upon the notion of process, which is itself a proxy for the notion of interaction. So in that sense, both the notion of creation and existence depend upon the notion of interaction in a way that is not a mirror image. 
So in that sense, we end up uh, establishing a kind of axiom one perspective of the relationship between those three concepts to say that interaction is more fundamental, again, from a definitional basis uh, than both uh, existence and creation. Uh, which kind of gets us to the to the sort of process uh, of of how the axioms works into the the thinking of the notion of universe again at a conceptual level, um, from a from a practical level of things actually happening and stuff like that. Then, uh, you know, we need to shift our orientation a little bit. And this is sort of the subject of axiom two, which is probably considerably more difficult to describe without a, a, a fair amount of preparation. Yeah, we'll get into that in a few minutes. Uh, now, what about the distinction between realism and idealism? You know, you say that the relationship between realism and idealism is uh, more primal than either idea itself, uh, which kind of is a head twister for me, who is a confirmed naive realist. Why don't you riff on that a little bit? Sure. So in this sense, we're going back again to a, a sort of philosophical tradition. So in other words, there's a, there's a lot of thinking that has been done by people uh, in, in Western philosophy and, and Eastern too, I'm sure. But the idea here is that when we have a notion of the subjective and the objective, you know, that there's a sort of dualist perspective, and this is going back to Descartes, for example, um, you know, mind and body and, and, and so forth. Um, one way to sort of establish a, a, a sort of philosophical system is to presuppose that there is stuff and then to think about the interactions between that stuff. Um, and this would be a sort of, uh, you know, realist perspective, i.e. based on causation and so forth as, you know, more or less what, we, what we've done to develop uh, science and technology. Um, the other perspective is to basically say, um, and this is the idealist perspective, is that the, the notion of the subjective as an observer is a primary thing. Um, and that in effect, we have um, the idea that there is something out there, that, that something exists at all is to some extent contingent upon the capacity for uh, some observer to to sort of project out the notion that there is something there that, you know, in effect, we can't ever really have a direct interaction. This is going back to Kant, for example, but um, the, the thing in itself is not something that we can know directly. We can only know it indirectly through the capacity for us to apprehend it. Um, and that if we take that principle uh, or that idea to its, its its sort of ultimate conclusion, then the idea is that, that well, we we know that we exist. I think, therefore, I am. So there's a kind of uh, primacy to the notion of the subjective and that, therefore, everything that else that, that we know is effectively in doubt. Um, and that would be kind of the, um, and again, this is not the only way to describe this, but it's, it's sort of an idealist perspective is that first there is mind and then we can maybe know that there is matter. Uh, whereas obviously the realist perspective would be to say first there is matter and then maybe there is mind as a kind of uh, epiphenomenalism uh, emergent uh, you know from brains and things like that and in this sort of orientation there's 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 a whole lot of uh, people that have have discussed this and, and really gone into this and so what I'm basically describing is essentially a, a different way of thinking about that which is just to say uh, insofar as we've noticed that interaction, as a process is more primary than both um, the perceiver and the perceived or the observer, uh, that observation is more, more primary than both the observed and the observer. And in effect, we, we therefore have to take the, the notion of interaction itself as a kind of primary thing, that the idea that um, the epistemology is the basis of the ontology. Um, and that in, in, the, in the degree, we're really looking at, well, what is the relationship between epistemology, which is essentially how do we know anything, and ontology, which is 
why does anything exist or what does it mean to, to be at all, right? So in effect, what we're, what we're basically pointing out is, is that there is a relationship between epistemology and ontology, that there's a kind of dynamic that connects those two concepts um, and that that is essentially the way in which we come to have the concept of there are real things or we come to have the concept that there is a self-observing and that if we're going to take measurement as being a kind of um, basis of, of, of whether or not there is something out there and whether or not there is a, an observer, then to some extent we're looking at uh, the relationship between uh, subjectivity and objectivity or relationship between anything derived from subjectivity or anything derived from objectivity. So in effect, if we look at the notion of realism as being based upon the notion of objectivity, and we look at the notion of idealism as based upon the notion of subjectivity, then anything that relates subjectivity and objectivity fundamentally, again, this epistemic process, is itself going to be the basis of the ontological nature of both the subjective and the objective, and therefore the basis of uh, both realism and idealism. So in that sense, the notion of the interaction between realism and idealism is therefore more fundamental than the notion of realism or idealism. One of the things I like about it is it doesn't make us choose, right? Uh, so much uh, uh, ridiculous argumentation about uh, are you an idealist or are you a uh, realist when uh, your perspective says, eh, uh, both. Yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of convenient. It's, it's sort of basically uh, saying that this is a, a little bit like asking how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. You have to make certain assumptions to even have the conversation. And in this particular case, uh, the idea is, is that by being really aware of what those assumptions are, we can notice that we can actually be agnostic about them. That's good. Uh, I got a couple other you know, review questions, but in the interest of time, I think we've covered enough with one exception. I had noticed when I was reviewing the previous episode uh, that you use the word process a lot, uh, and you use it in a way with a, a specific color to it. So when you use the word process in the context of these discussions, what do you mean? That's actually a really hard question to answer. <laughs> Part of the reason that I use the word process is specifically so that I don't have to answer that question. <laughs> it's funny. The notion of process in, in this particular case, I, and, and, and it's, it's good that you call this out because the way I'm using the word process actually includes a little bit more than uh, the way that term is normally used. So when we're thinking about process in an ordinary sense, we're, we're thinking about uh, changes of state. So for instance, say, uh, there's, there's a time element involved in the sense that you have the state that was and then the state that, that came afterwards. Um, you have a kind of uh, patterns in space or you know mass in space uh, sort of relationship um, in the sense, what is it that characterizes the pattern in the first place and what is it that characterizes the pattern in the subsequent state? Uh, but there's also the notion that there could have been something else that happened instead. So in, in this sense, the notion of process is usually taken uh, with the assumption of a kind of determinism, uh, i.e., you know, like with a computer science uh, perspective, for example, if I, you know, have this conditional statement and I give it, you know, this is a true thing, then it's going to do this branch. And if it's not true, then it's going to do this other branch. And in that particular sense, we, we sort of, you know, as, as a computer scientist, we, we think of processes as being deterministic. Whereas in the actual case, we don't really know for sure because uh, it could be the case that somebody unplugs the computer at that exact moment, at which point it's not going to go into either branch. It's going to do something else altogether. 
um, or nothing at all. So in other words, the, the, the notion of the hardware as effectively being contingent on a, an environment and the software as running inside the hardware, as long as the, uh, the sort of causality of the hardware is taken as a, as a foregone conclusion, then we can say that the thing is going to run in a specific way. You know, when we look at the the actual universe and such like that, well, we never can predict anything perfectly. We can only say that, uh, given these assumptions, that such and such is going to occur in such and such a, a manner. Um, so, in effect, as a, as an engineer, for example, I try to set up uh, environmental circumstances such that the things that I want to have happen must happen. But uh, as anybody who's actually spent time in a shop building things, uh, things don't always go as planned. And so when I'm thinking about the notion of process, I'm not just thinking about uh, forces in time or patterns in space. I'm also thinking about probabilities and possibilities. And so in this particular sense, the notion of process has a, a kind of indeterminism built into it uh, that is uh, not necessarily uh, spelled out in an obvious way most of the time that people use the term process. That's good. That's in, that helps me understand it a little bit better. It's certainly a big concept, and uh, as you see, we'll come back to it, I'm sure, time and again. So now let's actually jump into the new material in the uh, table of contents that we referenced earlier, the document called The Statement of the Axioms is where we're going to go next. It's pretty intense stuff, so I'm going to ask Forrest to go slow here and to the degree he can to give us examples and metaphors uh, to try to pull some of this uh, pretty pure uh, language of philosophy into a domain where people can uh, maybe get their hands around it a little bit better. I'm going to start off with uh, reading something from that document that's quite a mouthful, so I better read it than rather than just try to paraphrase it. The philosophical development of metaphysics has as its basis two ideas, that of foundational triplication and of type isomorphism. The idea of foundational triplication is model to all that is real, and particularly the foundation of each and every domain in terms of at least three essential concepts, which although inseparable, are always mutually distinct. The idea of type isomorphism is to consider that the essential concepts of each domain are those which have similar patterns of correspondence. Again, a, a huge uh, mouthful, but uh, what can you tell us about that? And the one thing don't go into, because I do have some questions about it specifically, is what is a domain? Okay, so don't go into what's a domain, but uh, cover the basis. Okay, I'll try my best. That's actually helpful. It, 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 it saves me uh, considerable time. I, and, and also, just as, as a manner of preface, let me just say that Many of these things are, are actually quite abstract. I mean, this, this collection of concepts having to do with the axioms and the modalities and uh, foundational triplication type isomorphism is effectively like as close to the perfected abstraction as, as is possible to get. So when we use concepts like the, the notion of process, I'm, I'm effectively trying to make it easier for people to understand these abstractions. Um, but when we get down to this level, it's, it starts to get uh, to the point where you know, we're, we're looking at claims which are being made from, from a vast amount of background information. It's a little bit like, um, you know, a mathematician may explore a whole bunch of cases and then come up with a generalization. But then when they're presenting the paper, they present the generalization first, which is probably the hardest thing to understand uh, without all the examples and without all of the background. So this is that same sort of way that the imminent metaphysics 
is a little bit like a math paper in the sense that it describes the abstractions first and then shows examples rather than the other way around. All right, so having said that preface, when we look at Western philosophy and we look at the concept of dualism, which is the idea of there's a mind and there's a body, and of course this was eventually supplanted by the notion of physical monism, which is essentially to say that there's a physical universe and that mind and consciousness are epiphenomena. They're, they're, you know, the brain basically makes mind happen as a later development. In this case, what we're basically saying is, is that in a general way, that whenever we're looking at a field of study, that there is going to be a collection of terms that are defined within that field, and that those terms themselves have patterns of definitional relationship between them. So, you know, one word may be defined in terms of, of, you know, two other words, and then one of those two other words is defined in terms of something else. And we can trace these patterns down until we uh, eventually get down to what are the, the more basic concepts? What are the most abstract concepts that are, that are relevant to that field of study? The metaphysics having explored, or myself as a person having explored a, a huge number of, here's that word again, domains of study, you know, fields of study, um, have noticed that there is a sort of a pattern to the primal concepts that occur within uh, each of those fields of study. So in effect, if you, if you do this sort of semantic analysis to say, okay, what are the most primal concepts of each field of study? We notice that there is essentially three primal concepts at a minimum that are necessary to have that basis. So in effect, this becomes the uh, first abstraction, which is to say that for every domain of study, that there are at least three such concepts. This is the foundational triplication um, idea that there's uh, for anything that I consider. So for instance, if, I, if I'm looking at, say, um, language as a, as a concept, right, as a field of study, well, there's um, semantics, there's statements, and there's syntax. And if I really want to understand language well, I really need to understand these three concepts. I need to understand, you know, what is an utterance? What is a statement? What is a paragraph? You know, what's a word? But, but basically, I'm looking at the relationships between not only uh, the words as a compositional process that makes statements and statements as a compositional process to make paragraphs and so on. I'm also looking at the ways in which words refer to things or the ways in which statements refer to things or the way in which paragraphs describe ideas. And so in effect, we're looking at a kind of within the field, what is the uh, what are the concepts and, and how do they work together in order to create a concept of communication and language and so on. Um, in music, for example, we might say um, that in order for us to to even have a piece of music, well, you need to be able to hear something. So the notion of how loud it is, the notion of you know what does the instrument sound like and what pitch is it or what pattern is it playing in. So melody and harmony um, and and intensity would be effectively the three concepts of music. And of course, these are you know really really basic things. This is so taken for granted, for example, that we don't usually notice that we can vary the pitch of something or the pattern of something independently of the tonality. We can always tell the difference between, say, a violin and a flute and a piano, uh, even though they may all be playing the same note at the same loudness. So we can vary you know, the notion of intensity. We can vary the notion of pattern and structure, and we can measure vary the notion of tonality uh, independently. But if any one of these is, is absent, if completely absent, uh, then the other two are also absent. Um, so again, you know, any, any field of study, we see three concepts and that's the foundational triplication uh, idea. 
what happens next, which is uh, was actually quite surprising to me when I, when I was originally doing this work, was that the, those three concepts, or whatever the concepts are that are at the foundation of a of a domain of study, that the patterns of the relationships between those foundational concepts is itself consistent with the kind of underlying template pattern, i.e. that we can look at the relationships between the concepts in one domain, and we can see that the pattern of those relationships is also the same pattern of relationships for the concepts at the foundation of some other domain, and that that pattern can effectively be described in an abstract way, and that's what the axioms are. So the notion of uh, foundational triplication allows for us to essentially have this notion of type isomorphism. So when we say isomorphism, we're saying one shape. That's what isomorphos is. Morphos meaning shape and iso meaning the same. So in effect, what we can do is, is we can say, okay, well, if the pattern of the relationships between one domain and another is, is the same, then we can start talking about the types of the individual concepts in those patterns. So for example, we can say, okay, well, this concept in this domain maps to this other concept in that domain. And in effect, those concepts have a type with respect to the other concepts in, in that domain. So for instance, we mentioned uh, earlier as, as an example, the, the notion of universe. And we said, okay, well, there's three concepts that are composing of the notion of universe. If I understood everything about those three concepts, uh, existence, creation, and interaction, then in effect, I understand the concept of universe. Well, if music, for example, if I knew everything that there was to know about intensity, pattern, and tonality, um, then in effect, I would know everything that there was to know about music. Now, obviously, this assumption and, and these kinds of things about what is possible to know and so forth are, are taken as extreme cases. But the idea here is, is that if we were to say, okay, well, I have these three concepts in one case, and I have these three concepts in another case, or uh, another example that we used was with language, um, statements, semantics, and syntax, that in effect, we can now start to develop correspondences between the concepts at the foundations of these domains, one of language, one of music, and, and of obviously the universe. So uh, what would that mapping be? Now, I can skip ahead a little bit here and basically say, well, after you work out a lot of things and, and, and you start to, to really understand the patterns of the relationships, rather than just naming the concepts, we start talking about their typology. Um, then, for example, you might notice um, that the notion of intensity in music corresponds to the notion of statement in language, which corresponds to the notion of interaction in universe. And, uh, you know, again, right now it, it might sound like, why would you associate it that way? Well, again, this depends upon axioms and a whole lot of other knowledge being applied. But the idea here is, is that the type of the concepts in each of those three cases is what we would call imminent. So the notion of imminent, omniscient, transcendent are in effect uh, a reference to the types of the concepts, much the same way that we would say uh, in computer science that a given number is an integer or might be referring to a string of characters or might be referring to uh, you know, binary pattern of some sort or another. Let's pause right there because this is, to my mind, we're getting very close to the center of what we're trying to get at here. And these three things that you just referenced, the imminent, the omniscient, and the transcendent, uh, you call the modalities as I understand it. And let me play this back to you and tell me if I got it, because I'm not sure I did, but I, I do feel like we're getting very close to the center here. You basically say the names given to the three roles modalities that domain primal concepts have with respect to one another are imminent, omniscient, and transcendent. 
I assume there, when you're talking about domain primal concepts, you're talking about these examples you just gave, and that these primal concepts, which are essential to the definition of the domain, can always be sorted into eminent, omniscient, and transcendent. Is that right? Or is it the relationship amongst them? Yeah. So let's go into that and give some ex- couple of examples, if you could, because I think getting this clear is really important before we move on to the axioms themselves. So, well, this, this is the idea of type isomorphism. So, for instance, um, I can take the, th- like, okay, the domain primal concepts for the domain. So, the notion of universe is a domain. It's a kind of container. But rather than containing stuff, it contains three concepts. Um, so, we're considering a concept in terms of other concepts. And creation, existence, and interaction are the specific primal concepts for the domain concept universe. With language, the domain being language, the specific primal concepts are statements, semantics, and syntax. Now, insofar as these primal concepts compose the domain, in other words, if I, if I think about that relationship, I have a notion of foundational triplication. Whereas if I start to think about the relationships that the primal concepts have to one another that creates a pattern, uh, that be the pattern of the axioms, then I can basically use the axioms to identify the types of each of the primal concepts in each of the domains. And then I can start to say, well, if the types are identified for one domain, say the domain of language, and they've been identified for another domain, the, the domain of say universe, then I can start to look at associative patterns between the concept implementing that type in each domain to the other. So for instance, what can we learn about creation, existence, and interaction if I model them using the same sort of uh, structure of relationships that occur in language between statement, semantics, and syntax? So in, in a sense, um, you know, and at first you might say, well, that sounds ridiculous. Like, why, why would anybody do that? Um, well, it, it actually turns out to be uh, really quite powerful because in this specific case, and this is a little mind-bending, but bear with me here. When we look at you know, what is actually going on in, say, statement, semantic, and syntax, well, the, the statement is kind of like the unit. It's like the unit of, of meaningfulness. The syntax essentially is sort of a compositional thing within that unit, right? So uh, it, def- it defines the various uh, words, uh, relationship, noun, subject, and object, so on, as being um, a pattern of relationships that compose uh, in, in, a, in a sort of structural way, uh, an individual statement. Whereas when we're looking at semantic, what we're basically looking at is a kind of uh, referring relationship that this statement points to something, it points to an idea or to an object in the world of, of, of reference or something like that. So in one sense, uh, and this goes back to sort of philosophical concept or, or maybe a mathematical one, that there's a difference between saying something is valid i.e. that if you start with certain premises, you end up with certain conclusions um, versus uh, th- that an argument is sound, i.e. that once I've uh, developed an argument that I can say that this argument refers to or connects to a particular situation. Uh, so for example, as an engineer, um, you know, I might be building a bridge and I have a, a series of mathematics that describe uh, whether or not that bridge is going to be able to resist uh, a particular 
uh, truck driving over it and how, how, whether or not the, the thing has enough strength to, to actually bear the weight of that truck. It's going to be really important, not just that I did the mathematics correctly, but that I did the right mathematics. If I'm using you know, statistical theory, uh, but it's the wrong model of statistics, then I might actually be wrong and have the bridge fall down because I was essentially using the wrong math. So in effect, there's a thing here where we want to ensure that the engineering calculations are not only taking the right input and producing the right outputs, um, but also that the inputs are coming from the right thing and, and are going to the right sort of uh, notions. Um, so in effect, the validity would be, did I do the numeric computation correctly? And the validity, I'm sorry, that would be the validity. And the soundness would be, did I input the right numbers and did they actually represent the right things? Um, and then when I look at the results, can I interpret the results in some way that's meaningful to uh, what matters to us in this case, that the, that the bridge still works? So when we're looking at, say, for example, semantic relationships in the domain of language, we're looking at a kind of uh, referential field that has a kind of transcendent character, i.e. it goes beyond the domain of language and points to something which is outside of the domain of language. And that's a, that's a soundness concept. Um, whereas if I if I'm looking at semantics, I'm looking at a sort of structural concept. You mean syntax? Yeah, uh, syntax. syntax. Sorry. Yeah, corrected. So in that sense, what we're what we're basically looking at is is that when we say, okay, well, creation as a concept has a kind of reference. It it points to things which are outside of our immediate field of experience. Um, so for example, the idea of of the could have happened or the, the, the possible thing that, that didn't happen or, or might still yet happen, but has not yet. The idea of there being a kind of reference to something which is outside of the domain of what is currently observable. Whereas if we're looking at existence, we're looking at a kind of structure or the idea of the shape of something or the shape of the component parts and how those component parts compose the, the aggregate object, i.e. the degree to which, say, an apple will be made out of atoms. Now, when we're looking at, say, interactions, obviously we're talking a kind of you know, relationship between the component parts and the possibilities. And so in this particular sense, we can say, well, in the same way that we have a statement as the unit of something and the apple as being a unit of something, we can say, okay, well, the notion of process, um, you know, the apple isn't just a discrete thing. It's 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 a continual interaction. You know, we we can see it, we can touch it, and so on and so forth. That the idea of of an apple, you know, as as it exists in time, um, you know, at, at a certain point it grows on a tree, and then it 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 has you know a change in color, it goes from green to red, for example, and then um, you know over time, if we just leave it sitting on a shelf, eventually it will decay. So in effect, the the notion of the the apple as a process and the notion of statement in the context of language have a certain correspondence to one another. In other words, we can think of the apple as being like a, a paragraph describing its overall transformations the same way that you know a, a unit of text uh, could be treated as a paragraph or a narrative. And the idea of the uh, component interactions, the syntax would therefore refer to the existential aspects, i.e. the interactions between the component parts, uh, you know, causing in the first case growth and then change in color and then eventually decay. Um, and, you know, we're thinking about that in terms of, of say, um, you know, protein interactions or particle physics or something like that. Whereas uh, in the larger sense of the semantic, you know, we're basically saying, okay, well, what is the meaning of that story? What is it, what is it uh, in terms of a metaphor or a model or, or uh, you know, what, what is the potentialities that can come out of this? Uh, 
So in this sense, we're, we're essentially showing that there's a way to understand the domain of language in terms of the concepts of creation, existence, interaction, but we're also showing that we can understand creation, existence, interaction in terms of the concepts of statement, semantics, and syntax. Um, and, and this example is a little contrived just to, just to try to show you the way in which that concept of type isomorphism shows up. But the thing is, is that as you start to do more of these, um, you know, you start to look at uh, all sorts of different domains of physics and mathematics and, and uh, human conception in any number of different fields, then these correspondences start to become stronger and stronger. And eventually it allows you to basically understand uh, almost any topic from almost any other topic. Um, as long as you really know what the connections are and you understand, you know, at least one of those fields really, really well. So let's go one one level deeper here, uh, which is to tie these uh, back to the modalities. The modalities refer to three words, imminent, omniscient, and transcendent. Those three words are uh, abstractions. They refer to types. So in this uh, metaphor before, you know, I basically said I could, I could have an integer or a string or a number, you know, floating point number, and, and the, those represent different types. In this sense, it's basically like saying, okay, well, I have a, have a category or a number system that really only has three numbers. It has a zero, a one, and all of the other ones. So in effect, there's a, there's a sense here in which once you understand the, the notion of measurement as, as basically having a, a basis, uh, a unit, and an extent, um, then you can pretty much uh, begin to understand the concept of the modalities as a kind of abstraction. So in effect, the, the idea of zero, the idea of one, and the idea of extent themselves having types. The, the ideas themselves have types. So in, in this sense, what we're, what we're basically saying is, is that the in, in the same sort of way that uh, for numbers, for example, like we have, you know, uh, a person uh, when they're in uh, maybe grade school or kindergarten or something like that are being taught how to do counting. So you might put, um, you know, three pencils in their hand and say three, and then you take the pencils out and you put um, three glasses of water on the bench in front of them and you say three, or you, 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 you take one of them away and then you point to it and you say two. And the idea is, is that eventually the, the, the student learns that the notion of number doesn't refer to pencils or to glasses of water or to people, um, but that the notion of count as, as one and two and three is essentially an abstraction that doesn't refer to any particular instantiated concept, but refers to a general class, all things which can be put into a one-to-one -one correspondence with a set that has one in it, one element. And you know, again, without trying to get into foundational mathematics here or anything like that, but the idea here is is that the modalities are the abstractions of what are the most primal concepts of what a concept is. I maybe get this wrong, but if if I'm right, this will help people understand it. If it's if I'm wrong, it'll help me understand it. When you gave it these uh, domain primal concepts for the universe and for language, it seems like existence and statement are similar. Uh, can we say those are eminent? Is that, is that, are these modalities? You have the right idea, but it does, it, it happens to be the case that those two would be omniscient. The concept of statement and the concept of interaction would be imminent. 
the concept of creation and the concept of semantic would be transcendent. Okay, I got the I got the pairs right, but I got the labels uh, off by one. That's right, and there's there's specific reasons why those particular concepts would be labeled that specific way. This is good. This is good. We're almost there, but that we almost go on to the axioms. Uh, let's play that game of uh, calling out three domain primal concepts and then labeling them with the modalities for another field or two to help people get an intuition for this. Well, okay. So we mentioned choice and causation earlier. The third concept would be change. So choice, change, and causation is a triple, is a, is a set of three concepts that, that show up a lot. Um, and the domain that we're considering here would be the, the notion of real. And just to you know, sort of really identify these things. So for instance, if we're, if we're looking at um, choice, change, and causation as being the elements of the domain of what is real, what would be the modalities? Well, the notion of change has the modality of the imminent, the motion of causation has the modality of the omniscient, and the notion of choice has the modality of the transcendent. And again, I'm just declaring this at the moment, but um, you know, as you get more familiar with these materials, particularly, um, you know, you, you get a kind of understanding of what the what the notions, what the typology notions of imminent, omniscient, transcendent are actually referring to. So then the correspondences become a lot easier to pick out. But at the moment, I'm just going to declare them and and, and leave the. Uh, the figuring that part out as, as something that becomes easier a little later on. Yeah, that's where a lot of examples could be helpful, but we don't really have time for it today, unfortunately. Uh, this, but this is helpful. This helped me get the sense that I was on the right track. I wasn't quite right. Uh, so maybe just a short sidebar before we jump to the axioms themselves, a little bit easier to understand than uh, change, choice, and causality are statement, syntax, and semantics. Well, we've, we've mentioned several. So for instance, we talked about perceiver, perceived, and perceiving, objective, subjective, and the relationship between objective and subjective. So let's do those two just because they're already part of the model. So perceiver would be transcendent, perceived would be omniscient, and perceiving would be imminent. Well, this is, again, a forward pointer to information we haven't had yet, but but basically, we can we can start to notice a few generalizations, right? So, for instance, why is one one or two two or three three? You know, at a certain point, you begin to recognize that there's a a sort of contextualization that happens, and in this in this particular case, uh, everywhere that we're talking about a relationship between two other concepts, that's going to be an imminent concept, or where there is essentially you know, zero or one context to to understand that. Whereas if I'm looking at omniscient, I'm looking at something which is essentially one framework removed. So for instance, rather than having the first person perspective of, uh, you know, in this moment, I'm having a conversation with you and we're both in this now, whatever that means, right? The here and now is, is this sort of this first person perspective. Whereas if I were to take a photograph of us having a conversation in a restaurant or something like that, the photograph would be a frozen moment in time. And myself looking at the photograph is not the same as myself uh, sitting in the restaurant having a conversation with you. So in effect, there's a framework removed created by the photograph as an object that I'm perceiving that has content which can define itself a kind of series of relationships or patterns. So in that sense, the notion of omniscient, uh, you know, this again, these terms were chosen partly because the 
English language happens to have them and they are constructed in the right sort of way to create a metaphor for what we're getting at with these types. But the idea here is, is that when we're looking at, say, a static pattern in space, and we're looking at it from a framework which is not those things, but is essentially observing them from a remote position, um, then that's going to have a sort of omniscient character, i.e. we know about all of the aspects of that, even though we are not that ourselves. Whereas transcendent is going to be more removed, again, it's going to be another framework removed even uh, more uh, farther away. In other words, transcend is to cross over. Uh, it's a relationship between domains of, of, of context altogether. So an example here would be something like, um, say, you know, we took a photograph of, of ourselves uh, while we were walking uh, in Paris. You know, we went on vacation and we had a, we had a grand time. And, you know, we come home and, and, and we have this photograph of, of ourselves in Paris. And then we put it up on the board and we say, oh, wow, there's this other photograph of ourselves at this restaurant. And, um, you know, you might observe, for example, hey, you know, in this photograph, your beard was, was, was longer than it was over here, or you were wearing this in this case, and you were wearing that in the other case. The correspondence between the two photographs and saying that they are of the same person is something that is not dependent upon the position of the photographs with respect to one another. One photograph could still be in Paris and the other photograph could be, you know, somewhere in the United States. And the fact of their separation doesn't change the fact that there is two pictures of one person and that that person may be at different times in different spaces and different situations. But the semantic content of same person is something that is uh, an abstraction that is beyond just the uh, event of my perceiving either photograph as an event in itself. So in effect, that notion of same person is a transcendent concept, which is itself not grounded within the same frame of reference as that of myself looking at one of the photographs. And so in that sense, the idea of transcendent is uh, in effect going to have a more remote character than even the concept of omniscient does. And the concept of imminence is going to have a very direct character, very much immediate first person process notion. So if we were to say, think about um, you know, going back to a way of thinking about language again, you know, you have first person relationship, you have third person relationship, and you have second person relationship. First person would be imminent, third person would be omniscient, and second person would be transcendent. And again, these correspondences are things that, you know, become more apparent in time. But for example, if knowing that these correspondences of first, second, and third person have uh, imminent, transcendent, and omniscient, respectively, then in effect, you can look at a particular series of, of things and you can say, okay, well, how does that uh, underlying model help us to, you know, in terms of first, second, and third person, for example, help us to understand, say, uh, you know, a thing like uh, space, time, and possibility. Space would be omniscient, time would be imminent, and possibility would be transcendent. So in this particular case, if we were to use the uh, metaphor of the photographs, um, I experience time in a first-person sense. If I'm thinking about space, I'm usually thinking about it as uh, either I'm outside of it or I'm a member of it. But either way, there's a, there's a notion of that I at least could be outside of it and treating it as a totality. I perceive the photograph as a totality. Whereas if I'm looking at the notion of, uh, say, with 
possibility. It's either the case that it's the same person in two different photographs, or it's not the same person in two photographs. I.e., is there is what what are the the facts of the matter with respect to this sort of abstract semantic conception? The notion of possibility is not something I'm ever going to be able to measure directly. I mean, it's, it's only something that I can imp- impute as a kind of uh, semantic notion or, or a kind of reification within a, within a domain of mathematics. So in effect, the, uh, the abstract world of mathematics is a different kind of space. Um, you know, we're thinking about Hilbert space and stuff like that as a different kind of space than, say, real space. And that that framework of conception that I'm using to consider real space uh, using Hilbert space is essentially more removed from the here and now in a very, very deep way. So, so in this sense, we can use the concepts of, say, first person, second person, and third person, or these metaphors of, of you know, f- firsthand experience, photograph of that, multiple photographs with correspondences uh, in terms of their content, and get a feel for what the notions of imminent, omniscient, and transcendent actually mean. This is great. This helped me a lot understand this. A suggestion I might give you from a presentation perspective, particularly for kind of uh, tangible kinds of guys like me who uh, can follow the theory if they have to, but it kind of hurts our head. Enumerating just a shitload of examples would be really handy to put in, you know, an, another document. You know, here's eminent, uh, omniscient, and transcendent. Here's 27 domains. Here are their three domain primal concepts. And you can induce the meaning of eminent, omniscient, and transcendent by the examples. Uh, I, I would find that helpful, and I expect a lot of other people would too. I, I definitely agree. And the the notion here is is to have lots of examples. And in the back of the Imminent Metaphysics book, uh, you'll see there's this section called the Table of Correspondences. And there's literally dozens, if not hundreds, of examples of triple concepts uh, where they're known and the correspondences that are more commonly identified for them. Ah, that's the downside of using the website instead of the book, because uh, the uh, those lists are not on the website. Well, I guess that's a good uh, excuse for me to find some time to put some up. <laughs> I would find it useful, and I expect other folks who are uh, who struggle with philosophy, like myself, uh, would find that very helpful. Now, finally, we make the turn. Now, interestingly, you also say that these concepts are a little tricky. You know, I'm going to read something from you talking about uh, the modalities. Therefore, no exact and final closed complete definitions can be given for the modalities, aside from those which are implicit and inherent within the axioms and all of their pure theorems in whatever language they are expressed. For this reason, the pattern of the meaning of each of the three modalities must often be expressed in a metaphorical character. I think that caught a good sense of uh, the fact that examples would be great and that these three ideas are kind of hard to nail down with great precision. Yeah, it is. I'm, I'm tempted to go into category theory as to explain why that, I mean, that's, that's, yeah. <laughs> Not today. Not today. Maybe next, maybe in the third episode. And uh, folks, we have decided we're going to do a, th- a third episode here because we're not going to get through all this amazing material. So now, finally, we go to the axioms. Uh, this is now about as deep as it gets in this material, at least that I was able to get to. Uh, number one, axiom number one, the eminent is more fundamental than the omniscient and or the transcendent. The omniscient 
and the transcendent or conjugate. Unpack that for us. Okay. Um, I'll probably start with the conjugation thing since that's a term most people are not likely to be familiar with. And it's actually not a uh, it's not a common concept in typical parlance, but it is it is something that shows up in a number of areas of mathematics and physics and, and, and other domains as well, but um, mostly in those places. So for example, if we know about, say, electric fields and magnetic fields, that something that happens in the electric field will induce a phenomenon in the magnetic field, and something that happens in the magnetic field will induce a phenomenon in the electric field. Those two domains, the domain of the electric and the domain of the magnetic, the contents of those are in a conjugate relationship with one another. It's a kind of hyperbolic relationship. Another example would be the relationship between the time domain and the frequency domain. Um, so if I'm doing a Fourier transform, for example, I might have a sine wave in the time domain. I'll end up with a pulse in the frequency domain. Whereas if I have a, uh, a sine wave in the frequency domain, I'll end up with a pulse, you know, a single impulse in the, in the time domain. These are unfortunately abstract examples, but I, I'm, I'm wanting to elucidate a little bit about why the uh, notion of conjugate comes in. In other words, the more that I have of one, the less I'm going to have of the other. But it's not so much a more or less as it's a kind of dynamic of one creates the dynamic of the other. So if I have a, a lot of dynamic in one, it might show up in a localized way in the other or vice versa. Maybe use the language example here. Well, in, in this case, the, the relationship between syntax and semantics. If I uh, spend a whole lot of effort in designing a language, for example, say I was to create a language, and I spent most of my time thinking about the semantic aspects, uh, I might not have spent that much time thinking, thinking about the syntactical ones, or I might have a harder time constructing a consistent syntax for all of the different things that I can refer to in the real world. Whereas if I spend a lot more time thinking about the syntax, I might come up with this really elegant structure but then discover that when I try to create semantic relationships to things in the real world, that I actually have a hard time because the real world is not regular in the same way that the syntax is regular. So in effect, there's a kind of uh, trade-off involved. If I uh, basically spend a lot of time um, on the structure side of things, I might not get the correspondences right. Whereas if I spend a lot of time in the correspondences, I'm going to have lots of examples or, or exceptions in the, in the uh, structure side of things. So, in this sense, we're, we're observing that there's a kind of general pattern that in all the cases where we have a domain and we identify which of the concepts at the foundation of a domain have the omniscient character and which other one has the transcendent character, that we're going to notice this sort of reciprocal relationship in the degree of definition that these concepts have with respect to one another. So in other words, if I spend a lot of time being really, really clear about the definition of one and its use in the, in the domain, um, I might not have as clear a notion as to what the definition of the other one is going to be, but that any degree of clarity that I have about the two of the concepts is in effect going to be created in terms of this uh, relational concept that effectively is this, uh, this notion of uh, conjugation. So that, that relational concept itself is the third concept. It's the, it's in this case, the imminent concept. The idea is that the relationship of conjugation is one which is uh, itself a entity within the domain. It's a, it's a. Uh, we, we used the word process earlier, but if I, if I really want to understand, say, the structure of matter in space, 
I need to look at the relationship between possibility and probability. Whereas if I really want to understand the relationships between what the probabilities are over the things that are possible, um, then I'm going to define those in terms of patterns of mass in space. Uh, and we see this in things like the uh, Schrodinger equation and the Dirac equation and so on. So in effect, what we're, what we're getting to here is, is the idea that the relationship between, say, um, the observable world and the conceptual world of, of, of the uh, evolution of, say, a uh, quantum mechanical system is effectively going to be more primal than the real world or the, the i.e. The, the actual observations that we make as a, as a concept uh, versus the potential observations that we could make and the, and the dynamics of those potentials. Um, this is, uh, as, as you may have noticed, a really mind-bending concept. But on the other hand, when we look at you know, what is it that these theories of, of physics and things like that are talking about? Um, again, we're looking at signals, we're looking at measurements, we're looking at a kind of causal process and the degree to which, uh, say, antecedents allow us to predict consequences is a, is a kind of thing. The, the antecedents would be omniscient, the consequences would be transcendent, and the notion of causation itself would be imminent, would be the idea of process. And so, in effect, the, the, the notion of axiom one is like a a hyper-generalization of, of these fundamental dynamics of the relationship between concepts as they occur in the foundation of domains. So let's, again, let's tie this back off with the language example. If statement is the imminent, and so in what sense is statement more fundamental than syntax and semantics? There's a trivial way to describe this, which is to say, um, I can't talk about semantics and I can't talk about syntax without also making use of statements. Um, in a certain sense, the, the idea is, is that the, uh, in, in one sense, we could be talking about language uh, in the sense of defining it or creating it or using it. And in another sense, we could be looking at the conceptual relationships between these concepts, both in practice and in theory. So in effect, there's, a, there's an idea here that when we look at what is the unit of meaningfulness Right? I mean, language is, 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 is mostly going to be important to us to the degree that it, it provides for communication, i.e. That, that meaningful ideas are exchanged through a, a kind of conversational process. And that language effectively as an enablement of that conversational process is effectively going to be, um, you know, the, the, the notion of the unit of meaningfulness is at some point going to become apparent. So in effect, the idea of semantic is essentially uh, meaningfulness uh, in the sense of reference. Um, and the notion of syntax would be to create meaningfulness by uh, starting with component meaningfulnesses, i.e. words, and assembling them into statements. But the interesting thing to note here is, is that to even think about words as being meaningful, I have to use statements to do so. So in other words, a definition of a term is itself a kind of statement. To say this word is defined as being this is to, is to actually have a subject, a verb, and an object. So in this sense, the idea of statement as the unit of meaningfulness is becoming apparent in the notion of the process of having a dictionary at all. Yeah, that's very good. That's very, very tangible. I like that a lot. I think it gives me an intuitive sense uh, that uh, this makes at least some kind of sense. Now, let's go on to axiom two. This is the real head herder. Uh, I'm still not clear on this all bits, I'll tell you that. So we're going to have to uh, you know, work on this a little bit. Do you have it off your tongue? So I got I have it written down here. I can read it off. Yeah, I can I can I can read them off. I mean, I 
I know them so well, it's, it's by heart. A class of the transcendent precedes an instance of the imminent. A class of the imminent precedes an instance of the omniscient. And a class of the omniscient precedes an instance of the imminent. What the hell does that mean? Well, a lot of things. Um, I will preface this also by saying that understanding Axiom 2 is probably one of the single most difficult aspects of this metaphysics. So don't uh, hold yourself to the fire trying to understand it in one pass. But the idea here is, is that uh, if we were to look at the notion of process and really try to understand what process is as a dynamic in the first person sense. So <laughs> first of all, in order to make the transition from axiom one to axiom two, we have to go from the domain of theory to the domain of practice. And that basically means that there's, there's going to be, at least as far as ourselves, uh, you, you, you and I are both uh, fairly intellectual people, so we tend to think in terms of theories. We think in terms of models or uh, hypotheses or uh, you know heuristics and things like that. But the idea is, is that that's all still third-person perspective. To get to the notion of process, I, I, I can't think of it in terms of the third person. I have to think about it in terms of the first person. So there's going to be a little bit of a shift in terms of how this needs to be described. But to give some notion of this so that you have at least a feel for it, uh, let's go back to the notion of choice since you asked about that earlier. In order to have a choice, I need three things. I need a range of things to choose from, an actual selection event, and a consequence. Now, on one hand, I could basically be saying, okay, well, we're looking at this in an axiom three sort of way. I said, in order to consider choice as a concept, I needed to consider uh, a range of potentials, a selection, and a consequence, i.e. three things that are distinct and separable and non-interchangeable. Um, can we validate that? Well, we can say uh, to some extent that if I don't have a range of things to choose from, then it's not a choice. If I don't actually make the selection, then I didn't actually choose. And if I can't distinguish between having chosen and not having chosen, then I also don't have a choice. I, I, there, there needs to be uh, there's this thing called principle of identity. That which is indistinguishable must be the same. So I need to be able to distinguish between a choice and a non-choice. So if there's no consequence, if there's uh, essentially something where the choice becomes irreversible, i.e. that the outcomes are manifest in the real world in a way that I can't completely undo, then to some extent the choice is completed. It's, it's, it's now a, uh, an event that has happened. So in effect, if I could undo it, then I wouldn't be able to tell whether that event occurred or not. So there needs to be a consequence in a kind of indelible way in order for the choice to actually be a choice. So you see this relationship between uh, choice change and causation coming up and that the notion of consequence, the notion of change, i.e. the selection, um, is, is also as much a part of the notion of choice. And this goes back to the inseparability of those three concepts. But anyways, let's get back to the notion of choice itself. So... For example, um, you know, I'm sitting here today and, and tonight uh, my partner could come back and I could decide to have dinner with her or we could go out to see a movie, although obviously in COVID that's not so likely, but, uh, or we could take a walk or we could stay home and just read a book. And uh, the notion here of those are the potentials that I could select from, um, at some point or another, there could actually be a selection. I could say to her, hey, I have a preference to this and we can negotiate a little bit, but uh, maybe I just, for my own part, decide to do one of those things. And having made the selection, I decide to, you know, stay home and read a book. 
you know, there's there's an experience that I had and, and, and a whole lot of other things that have changed. I might know something different about the world if the book happens to be nonfiction or if I had uh, some dream as a result of, of a narrative that was told to me. There's going to be an ongoing series of future events that are in a sense contingent upon the act of that choice. So what we're thinking about here is the actual process. It's the flow from probability and possibility, a selection that makes one of those possible things, presumably one of the more probable ones, but not necessarily so, actual, and then the actuality having essentially a uh, consequence in the world, i.e. that the actuality becomes objective. So in effect, when we're looking at choice, we're, we're looking at something which is roughly analogous to creation itself. There's an emergence that goes from the potential to the actual. And so if we were to uh, sort of go back, and again, we can do these correspondences now, that insofar as the notion of choice change and causation is the basis of the real, then we can basically say, well, to the extent that we regard the universe as being real, then the notion of choice connects to the notion of creation as the transcendent. The notion of change connects to the notion of interaction as the imminent. And the notion of causation and consequence connects to the notion of existence as omniscient. And, you know, if you think about this, it actually makes a lot of sense. You, you begin to all of a sudden be able to understand um, the notion of creation, existence, interaction in terms of the concepts of choice, uh, change, and causation, or vice versa. You can understand choice, change, and causation in terms of uh, creation, existence, and interaction. Now, the, the dynamic here is, is, is the important part, though. So rather than thinking about the correspondences under a, a type isomorphism basis, the real notion here is, is that the idea of uh, going from potentiality to actuality is a kind of process. It has a kind of emergence. There's, a, there's, a, there's an event of measurement or there's an event of selection. And so in, in one sense, the measurement could be uh, a notion of a flow from the objective to the subjective. Whereas the notion of choice would be a notion of flow from the subjective towards the objective. And again, these kind of correspondences allow us to clarify these concepts quite well. So in effect, when we're thinking about you know, the notion of choice, again, as I've described it here as a sort of metaphor of you know, a range of potentials, a selection event, and a consequence, that it's not the abstract notion of I could choose these things. It is the actual embodiment of I make this selection right now. So uh, in this specific moment, I'm choosing the words that I'm going to speak next. And to some extent, I don't necessarily know what I'm going to say. Uh, the instant before I say it, I have a general sense of what it is that is important to communicate. I have a, uh, a propensity. I have this huge field of, of experience and knowledge that, that it, it informs my speaking. And I more or less just trust that, that what I'm going to say is going to be the right and appropriate thing so that you would be able to understand. And the fact of you're in this moment hearing these particular things is, is, is something which is to some extent indelible. I can't erase your memories. I can't um, undo uh, a particular thing. You know, occasionally uh, I might say something which is, uh, you know, wrong or just, uh, you know, inappropriate or whatever or mistake, just, just flat out. I didn't mean that. And at that point, I have to do a kind of damage control and, and, and hope that people will be forgiving of, of, of my, my errors. So in this sense, the idea of 
you know, in the process of communication, it, there's this ongoing sequence of choices. I can pick any word out of the English language. I can assemble any statements that I, that I can conceive of, um, and then I can speak them. And then the action of speaking them becomes essentially the way in which uh, the manifest world goes uh, through a dynamic of, you know, again, the possible things I could have said into the actual things that, that, that make it to this recording. Okay, well, that helps a bit. Uh, I assume it's no coincidence that you use the words class and instance, which are seemingly being used in ways that are at least uh, similar to the way they're used in object-oriented programming. Let's make the connection. So taking choice, or in, in relationship between choice, change, and causation, choice is transcendent. But then choice has these three components, a range of potentials, a selection, and a consequence. The range of potentials is multiple. So we're, tr we're basically saying that there's a concept, a class of potentials, right? The, the idea of I could choose this, I could choose that, I could choose this other thing. Um, those are going to a movie is an instance of something I could do. Reading a book is an instance of something I could do. But the class is I could choose one of these things. So it's the class of choice, and then, but once you actually collapse it, it becomes a an instance of of the imminent. Now, of course, this is a little confusing because in uh, object-oriented programming, when you create uh, an instance from a class, it's an instance of the same class. Well, in this particular case, there is a difference. So we've gone from the class of the transcendent to an instance of the imminent. So the instance refers to the selection. And the class refers to the potentialities that I could choose from. So I go from transcendent to imminent, the transcendent being the class and the imminent being the instance of the selection. Now, what's interesting here is, is that the notion of consequence is itself uh, not contingent upon any single choice, but is actually contingent upon a whole series of choices. So for instance, for me to choose to stay home and read a book uh, it isn't a nuclear choice. There's actually a whole bunch of component choices. So, for example, uh, I have to pick which book I'm going to read. I pick which chair I'm going to sit on, uh, which side of the house, or you know, what time of day, you know, whether or not I, I, I wrap myself in a blanket because it's chilly or whatnot. I mean, there's, you know, what page I go to, whether I'm going to read fast or slow. There's a, a hundred little choices. In fact, every muscle motion that I make to turn a page, for example, it isn't just I'm going to turn this page now. It's a choreography, a symphony of neural signals uh, activating muscles in a particular sequence and pattern so that my body and motion of bones is such that the mechanical action of my hand being in the right place to grab the page and to turn it happens. So when we're looking at consequences, we're actually saying that there is a multiplicity of choices. Every single one of these details has to, in effect, be you know, selected, right? You know, which chair or which book and so on. All of these things are necessary in order for there to be a consequence of I had the experience of reading a book. So, you know, by the time I go to bed and and the consequences uh, are showing up, then in effect, there's, there's a, again, this multiplicity relationship, a class of the imminent, a class of selections results in a singularity of consequence, i.e. I go from a class of the imminent to an instance of the omniscient. I have a memory of reading a book and of the narrative that I, you know, if it was fiction or uh, something that I learned and therefore a change in the state of myself if it's nonfiction. And in this sense, we're basically saying, okay, we now have this uh, idea that 
for any consequent, you know, if we're looking at causality, causality is never from a single antecedent to a single consequent. It's always a plurality of antecedents to a plurality of consequence. And in effect, the idea of the universe is as essentially having this, you know, sort of relationship of, of, of many to one uh, as a way of understanding the, you know, the sort of transform of causation. So in effect, there's a uh, idea here of that if I'm going to even think about, like to, to go all the way around. So axiom two, as you notice, is a, is a sort of ring. It goes from um, transcendent to imminent to omniscient and then back to transcendent again. So what does it mean for me to basically have the notion that I could choose to read a book? Well, that potentiality is itself contingent upon a whole lot of consequences from uh, all sorts of things. So for instance, uh, to have that as an option, I have to actually own a book. Presumably, I need a house and a chair to sit on, uh, or at least some place uh, you know that, that is uh, at least not so loud or there's there's a huge number of things that are assumed. I'm, I'm basically assuming that I've I've learned the English language and that I uh, can can actually see the typeface on the page. Um, that it's not raining on my book at the time that I'm reading it or any number of other things that uh, would allow me to understand uh, and actually appreciate the content. I have time to read it and, all, and so on. So in a sense, the idea of having the possibility of reading or of uh, going to a restaurant or eating at home or seeing a movie or any of the other things that I could choose to do in a given night, that each one of those possibilities as a single possibility is contingent upon a multiplicity of prior consequences, prior outcomes. So in this sense, we have this flow of plural to singular, plural to singular, plural to singular, as we go around this dynamic of this ongoing process of making choices. Okay, now I got it a little bit better. I think my problem was I was leaning too heavily on the object-oriented programming metaphor, and that was what was throwing me off because the moving from, you know, class of omniscience to instance of transcendence. What the hell does that mean in terms of object-oriented programming? But now the way you've explained it this way, it makes a lot more sense. So uh, I wouldn't say I have mastered this one, but I am on the road. Well, if, if, you're, if you're wanting to use uh, computer science metaphors, we can look at, say, uh, you know, I author something in source code, I compile the source code, and then the source code can then run and can provide the capacity as a running program to be an editor to edit more source code, which I can, can then compile and then can run to be a compiler, which I can then you know, use as a process itself. So for instance, uh, in this case, the modalities would be shifted a little bit. So uh, editing source code on a computer is essentially an omniscient operation. And when I compile the code, the compiler is essentially executing a transcendent process. It's a, it's effectively moving things from the source code domain to the, uh, the runtime domain or the uh, executable domain, i.e. it's machine code and a, and a byte code or something like that that the computer can actually run with an interpreter or on a CPU or something like that. And then when it's in that domain and can actually be launched as a process, the process itself is, is essentially a different world than the, than the world of the source code. So that's why we think of the compiler as being a transcendent operator. It's going from the world of source to the world of bits and bytes in the machine as electron patterns and uh, physical wiring substrates. So in effect, there's a, uh, there's a series of 
events that are involved in that transformation. But then once it is in the runtime, there's a series of patterns that emerge there that uh, result in, say, you know, a screen uh, that, that, that I can use as an editor to, to write more source code on. So in this sense, we see a kind of Axiom 2 dynamic, but it isn't going to be understood purely within the concepts of, say, uh, the typology within the language of the source code itself. And it won't be understood within the typology of the compiler as a process itself, or even as a typology within the, the runtime itself as a process executing on that machine, creating the illusion of uh, World of Warcraft as a game or, or other things like that. So in effect, what we're seeing here is, is that in order to understand Axiom 2, we have to actually think in terms of multiple overlapped metaphors that cross domain relationships in uh, idiosyncratic ways. And that that, uh, that manner of understanding that gives us a deep insight into the fundamental nature of process itself as a concept. And I suppose I should actually give a little bit of a warning here because the thing about these things, this metaphysics in effect, I usually issue this disclaimer before getting into this material, but at this point, it's unfortunately a little too late. But the idea here is, is that you know, when you're understanding this metaphysics at first, it's treated as a kind of theory, as a model, as a, as a sort of description of how things might be conceived of. But once you begin to understand Axiom 2 directly and you begin to understand the process of the process itself, you begin to recognize that this isn't something which is a theory anymore. It's something about the relationship between your personal subjective and the actual objective of the world. And it moves from the domain of just epistemology into an actual firsthand ontological experience. And if you happen to be too firmly reified in, say, a, a, just a realist perspective, the experience can be a little bit uncomfortable. Um, so again, there's a little bit of a disclaimer with that. I'm a realist, but I haven't found it uh, uncomfortable, just confusing. But now I'm getting it clear, and that helps. <laughs> uh, so let's move on from Axiom 2, which uh, it was clear to me it was going to take the longest amount of time because it was the, I'm not sure if it's the deepest, but it had the most moving parts. Uh, the last one, much simpler in its statement, probably has some great depths, but probably doesn't require so much explication. So the third axiom is the classes instances of the eminent, omniscient, and transcendent are distinct, inseparable, and non-interchangeable. Yes. So we, we actually covered this a bit earlier when we were describing, say, the degree to which you can't really understand any one of the fundamental concepts of a domain without actually implying or at least in, in incorporating some understanding or some assumption of the, the other two. So, for example, when we were looking at creation, existence, and interaction. And we were basically saying, well, I can't really understand the notion of universe without understanding all three of these concepts. But it's also the case that I can't understand any one of those three of those concepts without understanding the other two of those concepts. So in effect, the idea of foundational triplication and the notion of axiom three are very closely aligned. The concept that may be a little trickier, that is maybe, I guess, uh, well, we've, we've gone and we've thought about this as a kind of metaphysics. And we've, we've shown that there are essentially three modalities, and I've talked about three axioms. It turns out that there's a mapping between the modalities and the axioms themselves. So in effect, there's a kind of reification that can occur in so far as the metaphysics can be self-describing through the connection of the axioms and the modalities. And this is probably one of the the single most important aspects of this particular theory of, of, of conception as, as, as anything that is possible to know. 
it has been in historical terms treated as essentially a sort of criteria of correctness, or at least a criteria of quality uh, for a system of metaphysics to be able to describe itself. What's interesting about this particular thing is that it is not only the case that the metaphysics can describe itself, but through the dynamic of Axiom 2, it can describe the process of describing itself. Insofar as description is a process, in the same way that choice is a process, or causation is a process, or change is a process, that in effect we can say when we're looking at the metaphysics, it's not only the case that it can describe itself in theory, or that the theory can be self-referential, but that the closure of the theory closes over itself at a process and ontological level, rather than just at an epistemic one. What this essentially means is, is that in the same sort of way that we can consider the relationship between realism and idealism as being defined in terms of the axioms and the modalities and the, and the dynamics of those things, right? If we're looking at uh, originally this being an inquiry of the relationship between the subjective and the objective, and that the, uh, the axioms and the modalities are closing over the relationship, that insofar as that relationship is fundamental to both the subjective and the objective, the axioms and modalities close over the subjective and the objective inclusively. So in this particular sense, the process of the description of the metaphysics of itself ends up including the describer as well as the thing described, and obviously the process of that description. This is one of the deeper aspects of the metaphysics. Yeah, I would say I'm not there yet, but I will keep that in mind as I continue to dig. So the last thing we're going to talk about today and it's the one that I haven't a clue what it's about. And that is what you just alluded to a, a minute ago, which is the association of a modality to each axiom. Uh, you say that axiom one has the nature of the omniscient modality. Axiom two has the nature of the imminent modality. And axiom three has the nature of the transcendent modality. Now, I understand what those words mean. I even have a little bit of a sense from the uh, from reading and now doing this work here with you, I will have to admit those three sentences have me scratching my head. Tell me what they mean. When we think about theory as a process, like a mathematical theory or you know an idea of, of, of patterns in space, the narrative is something that exists in a domain. It's different than the perceiver. Like usually there's... Uh, if, I, if I'm describing a field of mathematics, I can treat it as a, a sort of object of my perception. I am not the mathematics myself. I am merely the mathematician. And in this specific sense, when we say that one term is defined in terms of other terms, we are neither the term defining nor the term being defined. We might express the definition as a thing, but the definition can be written down, put in a book, the book can be closed and stuck on a shelf and it's going to sit there as a static thing for however long until someone else picks the book up and reads it. So in this particular sense, the statement on the page, it's, it's one framework removed much the same way that what if I'm looking at a photograph, I'm neither, uh, I'm not the contents of the photograph. I kind of see the whole photograph from a framework that is different than the firsthand perspective of the people that are being photographed at the time the photograph was taken. So in this particular sense, axiom one, insofar as it's talking about definitions or essentially the relationships between concepts, it's looking at it from a, a framework removed perspective. So therefore, 
Axiom 1 has as a statement the character of the omniscient with respect to Axiom 2, which is process, and Axiom 3, which is this, you know, again, a sort of uh, transcendent notion. It's, a, it's an altogether other than notion. So in effect, when we're, when we're looking at Axiom 1, we're basically saying, okay, what is the structure of the concepts in the domain? What is the theory of their relationships? Whereas when we're looking at axiom two, as I mentioned before, insofar as it's processed, it's not something that I can think about from a theoretical perspective. I can't think about it in terms of a third-person perspective as I can with axiom one. I have to think about it in terms of a first-person perspective. Choosing is a process that actually involves a subjective and not someone else's subjective, but my personal subjective. So in effect, there's a you know, for every person that's conceiving of these things, they they are themselves in a first-person relationship with the universe. They are, you know, having perceptions and expressions. They are uh, in that moment in a first-person perspective. And if we were trying to characterize the nature of that process, we're going to talk about it in terms of axiom two dynamics. So, in effect, there's a uh, a sort of transformation between the notion of theory and practice. Insofar as um, well, this is there's this quip. Uh, in theory, theory and practice are the same, and in practice, theory and practice are different. So how are we to make a, an understanding of this? How are we to conceive of both of these things as being practically and evidentially true, right? And, and in a sense, this is, this is a, a little bit of what the axioms themselves are, that the notion that in theory, that theory and practice are the same is uh, a bit like an axiom one way of thinking about the world. Whereas the firsthand experience of the practice, the actual action of, of, of being in the shop and doing something where you notice, well, you know, the theory said the measurement was going to be this, but when I actually check it with my calibers, it turns out to be this other thing. It's a little off. You know, maybe the person that was cutting the part wasn't quite exact. Nonetheless, the idea here is, is that when we're trying to do something in the real world, we occasionally have to account for the fact that theory doesn't predict everything perfectly, which we already knew to be a case. Um, there's enough randomness in the universe that um, some things don't go as planned. You know, plans are not always going to happen exactly as they are conceived to. In fact, they almost never do. So, in effect, there's this uh, firsthand experience, which is described by Axiom 2. And then we can say, okay, well, if the third-person perspective is Axiom 1 and the first-person perspective is Axiom 2, then obviously the uh, remaining case of the second-person relationship is Axiom 3. Well, in one sense, we can think of axiom three as being the basis of the mediation between axiom one and two, i.e., uh, what is it that allows us to uh, have a concept that every world is going to have this, this primacy, con uh, that there are certain concepts are going to have primacy, and that this uh, structure of this primacy is in relationship to uh, other worlds which also have fundamental concepts and a structure of primacy that happens to be the same one. So, in effect, it's the uh, it's the soundness relationship. It's basically saying that the foundation of this domain and the foundation of this domain, uh, this other domain, uh, are in a kind of uh, peerage relationship with one another. So when we describe, say, uh, the relationship between choice, change, and causation, or statements, semantics, and syntax, and then we, we mention things about, say, universes having uh, creation, existence, and interaction, we can say, okay, well, the patterns of the relationships between those three concepts in each of those three cases align with one another in a sort of peerage way, that there's no fundamental language. 
there's no single uh, embedding context in which all of these contexts are embedded, but that we can understand each of these embedding contexts by understanding other embedding contexts which have been brought into relationship uh, with that. So in effect, there's a kind of second person relationship, whereas, you know, when we say second person, we're basically saying it's like a, a conversation between one person and another uh, in, in a sort of generalized way. So in, in this specific sense, the, the three axioms naturally correspond to the uh, third person, first person, and second person sort of perspectives. And in that way, they also correspond to axiom one being omniscient, axiom two being imminent, and axiom three being transcendent. Ah, that works. I got it. That's good. Okay, good. Let's wrap it there. I think we covered a tremendous amount of material and pretty good depth here. Just one last little piece just to truly tie it off. All right. One last word. Last paragraph in your case. Well, tiny, tiny paragraph. To the extent that the axioms are now in a one-to-one correspondence with the modalities, uh, the idea here is, is that if I have a correspondence between the axioms and the modalities... And insofar as the axioms are describing a relationship between the three modalities, then the axioms can describe their own relationships. In effect, the axioms can describe the pattern using the pattern. And this is the sense in which the axioms can describe themselves. I think that will be the final word. Uh, This has been really wonderful, a really deep dive. Uh, It's been great to have you on. I look forward to having you back next time. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for your patience and uh, willingness to uh, endure all that. Uh, it was fun, actually. Believe it or not, I enjoy this kind of stuff. Well, that's super cool. I, I'm, I'm glad. I, I definitely uh, have, have enjoyed speaking with you and, and have gotten to uh, really appreciate your sensibilities. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.